Thank you so much, Pastor Sunkun, for leading us in our service. And we welcome everyone as we come to listen to God's Word. Speak light, truth, and hope into our lives. So this week is the final sermon on the First Peter series. And next week, as is often our custom here, what we try to do as we finish a Bible book, we'll try to do a summary, drawing all the threads together. So please do join us. So let's begin by asking a few questions. When are you most happy? When are you most helped? When people give you something you need or people give you something you want? Are you happier or more joyful if your parents gave you, bought you some assessment books? It's something you need? Or are you happier or more joyful if your parents gave you something you want, another game? for your recreation. And I think most of us would say we are happier. There's more value add to your life and my life when I get something I want. So, um, celebrated my birthday last month and my wife bought me a gift. It came in a rather big box and I unwrapped it. And as I opened it, guess what my wife bought me for my birthday? She bought me a mop. And why a mop? And because I both like cleaning and I need a better mop and I want a better mop. So she bought it from Shopee. It's a wonderful mop. She said for about $20, she gave me the price where you fill it, fill it up with water, the container there, and then you press it in, it spins around, right? And then you take it out after your mop, you, you press on the other side of the compartment and it spins around and dries it. It's really wonderful. And so, what adds value to your life more? Something you need or something you want? What should make you more complete? What should make you stronger? What should make you more joyful? The Christians in First Peter, this is what they were facing, the circumstances. And what is it that they really needed? The circumstances that they faced triggered them. They were insulted, that's chapter 3 verse 9. They were slandered, they were maligned, they were increasingly accused. And we keep saying as we preach to First Peter, at this moment as we best understand from the scholars of that time when this was written, there's no statewide persecution, no empire-wide persecution, but persecution was breaking out sporadically. So example, it could be that your children are playing in this playground, then they discover in this country that you live in and the culture that you live in, that they are Christians and they start bullying them, they start, they start insulting them, they start slandering them and maligning them and accusing them as, uh, as weird people simply because they know they are children who are Christian. Or your children go to school and that happens. Or you go to work or do your business. Increasingly, that was the case. And so what were they tempted to do, the believers of that time? They were tempted to do this. In chapter 2, verse 23, they were tempted to retaliate, to give back to them. They're giving to us all this slander, all this insult and slander, all this malign, all this uh, accusation. Let's give it back to them. The other response would be to apostatize, not just give back to them. Why do we fight? Why do we fight them? Let's just give up on our faith. And so we need to ask again, as we begin, 
What was God's final words written to the Apostle Peter for them to overcome persecution, to overcome seduction, to overcome temptation and remain faithful to Jesus? What is it they really needed? What is it they really wanted that will make them more secure in their faith in God, in their faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? With that, we arrive at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore also, I exhort you elders among you, the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And so in chapter 1, we find that Peter... He identifies himself as apostle, and apostle means a messenger of God. But by chapter 5, he now identifies himself as an elder. And you ask yourself, why? I think it's because of the connective word, so, or in some versions, translated, therefore. So, or translated, therefore, takes you back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. And there, Peter says, for it's time for judgment to begin where? Where do you think judgment should begin with? Begin in society. When God, when Jesus returns in all His glory, judgment should begin out there with all who do not believe. But it's a very strange teaching where Peter says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God or literally with the house of God. And it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And most scholars think that this, in Peter's mind, his mind goes back. The echo in his mind from the Old Testament is this. It's most likely Ezekiel. And Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel, God is raising Ezekiel the prophet to warn his people of coming judgment. And the coming judgment is upon his nation upon God's city, Jerusalem, and upon God's people, beginning with God's leaders. And so, it's a terrifying image as this begins. Kill the old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom the mark is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary, begin at my temple. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Now, to fully understand this frightening prophecy that's here, that God is going to come and begin the cleansing with His temple, we really should pick it up from Ezekiel chapter 8. In Ezekiel 8, in the vision given, to, uh, given by God to His prophet to warn His people of His coming judgment, then He said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So what is this? He's getting the prophet to see, take a look at this. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing there. And so what is he peering into? What's he looking at? So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men 
of the elders of the house of Israel. And so what does the prophet see? He sees in the temple itself, there are idols in the temple of the true and the living God. With Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his own room of pictures? For they say, the Lord, the Lord does not see what we are doing. Does not, the Lord has forsaken the land. He also said to me, you will see greater abominations that they commit. So, in all likelihood, with this background in Peter's mind of what God does when he brings judgment, this is God's anger against his people. And God's anger against his people, there are closet idolaters among God's worshippers in his temple. On the surface, they look like they are worshippers of Yahweh, the true and the living God. But underneath, they are actually idolaters and they are so brazen, they are so bold or so foolish, so wrongfully courageous to bring idols into God's very temple. This is what we call the traitors, the betrayers, the Trojan horse. And who were leading this in this spiritual cheating of God? In the spiritual two-timing of God, Israel's leaders were the ring leaders of this. Israel's elders. So that is why God will purify the house of God beginning with the elders. And so to fully understand the weight of what Peter is saying to us in chapters 4 and 5, as he ends this epistle, exhorting them with what they need, to be strong in their faith. He goes, he takes us to what I would call both the heart of idolatry and the danger of idolatry. The heart of idolatry as it was practiced then in Ezekiel's time and right throughout the Old Testament among God's people and the danger of idolatry from then to even now. What is the essence, the spirit of idolatry? The essence and spirit of idolatry is very simply this. They were unwilling to trust in God. So for them, in Ezekiel's time, unwilling to trust that Yahweh was their God, was their provider, was their protector, that God was their security and God was their everything. And once you're unwilling to trust God, what would you do? Once you're unwilling to trust God with your life, to hand your life over to Him, you will snatch your life out of God's hands. You will take your own jobs, your own prosperity, your own protection, your own provision, your own health into your own hands. In other words, the heart or essence of idolatry is you slowly depend, subtly depend on self-rescue for self-security. And that's the danger of idolatry. And that happens, that happened then, still happens now. And prior to COVID-19, you could find in many churches from the west to the east, from the east to the west, and ours included, 
that people might be coming to services. And there's a warning. Just because you are a churchgoer doesn't mean you are a God-fearer. Just because you are a churchgoer, maybe even in a ministry, doesn't mean you are a Christ follower and Christ lover. Because the way you live your life from Monday to Saturday, you're unwilling to trust God for your, stud- for your children's education. You're willing, unwilling to trust God for your, for your work. You're unwilling to trust God for your health until COVID-19 hit us. Then you realise there is nothing out there to protect us apart from the grace of God and the power of God. Unwilling to trust God, snatch things from God's hands. That's the heart of idolatry. But what about the danger of idolatry? The danger of idolatry is this. It's firstly our blindness. All of us are idol-making machines. We are very prone to not trust God, to take our life out of His hands and take it into our own hands. Then we continue with our temple going then for the Jews. We continue with our church going here, with our ministry doing but all the time denying that we are closet idolaters, that we still believe in self-rescue for self-security, that I really cannot put my hands, my, my life in the hands of Jesus Christ. I cannot put my hands in God, our Heavenly Father. I must keep something for myself. It's a little bit like the advice given by mothers to many wives who get married. Uh, never trust your husbands completely. Or it could be the reverse. Never trust your wives completely. Always keep a, a separate bank account so that if things go wrong, right, you will have this to fall back on. There may be some wisdom there. But when it comes to God, that illustration comes to an end. Never hide things and think that you can provide yourself and be more secure without giving your whole life entirely to God. To love God with all your heart and mind and soul to trust that He loves you and He will provide for you and protect you. So that's both the substance, the essence and the danger of idolatry. Are you in that danger right now? Even as you listen to this message? And so when Peter says he identifies himself as a fellow elder, he's not speaking simply about his equality with them. He's sharing how God purified him. If Ezekiel and Malachi 3 was the other passage swirling in his mind, occupying his heart as he writes to them to strengthen them, he's sharing how God purified him from his self-rescue, from his experience of self-redemption, how he himself, and he says he's a witness of Christ's suffering. In what way was he a witness of Christ's suffering. In what way was he a witness of Christ's suffering? If Peter had said he was a witness of Christ's transfiguration, that could be understandable. He did see Christ transfigure and that's recorded in Matthew chapter 13. If he said he was a witness of Christ's resurrection, but for him to claim that he was a witness of Christ's suffering It's slightly strange, you know why? Because in his own life, 
in his own relationship with Jesus in his earthly life, this is what happened. Recorded in Matthew 16, verse 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must go and he must suffer many things from who? Whoa, lo and behold, he must suffer many things from the religious leaders, from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed. So he must go to Jerusalem. So how many of you make a decision? I must go to the place where I will die. We are trying to avoid every nation and we're trying to avoid every nation coming to us that has an outbreak of this virus, especially the, the highly infectious one, the infectivity, the severity and the mortality of the Delta variant. We're trying to avoid that at all costs. We never want to go to a place that might be our last place, the location or geography of my death. But Jesus is intent to do that. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of the elders who are the Trojan horse of this, idolaters among the worshippers of God. And he must be killed, obviously betrayed by them. And the third day, he be raised to life. So Peter heard this. The first prediction of Jesus' suffering. And what was his response? His response to Christ's suffering Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Here is student rebuking master, right, rabbi. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Notice he doesn't say, Get behind me, Peter. You are a hindrance to me. If Jesus, if God ever says, you're not a blessing to me, you're not a servant to me, you're not a, you are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. So what do we learn here? Very precious lessons. And the precious lesson is this. What is it? That Peter was actually a failed witness of Christ's suffering in his life. And Jesus told him, though you are so confident that you will not deny me, even though everybody might deny me, yet Jesus warned him, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows three times. And so that's very important for us to realize that he was a full witness of Christ's suffering, yet he was so sure that he will be a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. He failed as a witness to Christ's suffering. He tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And how dare he say that he's a witness of Christ's suffering and so sure he'll partake in Christ's glory. How? Because it's all about being forgiven and restored by God, by Christ. Peter then is an example of what? Peter then is an example of someone, an elder, who has sinned, who has failed, who has repented, who is restored, and will share with Christ's glory. Peter is an example of a failed, restored, and would be glorified under shepherd, under Christ. 
And that's why he's going to say by the time he reaches verse 11, that God will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, establish you. And he's not writing just out of nothing. He's writing, I think, out of his own journey with Christ on earth. That he failed as a witness of Christ. That is one very possible valid interpretation that is here. And from that, he goes on to say, now as a forgiven, as a restored, and a would-be glorified pastor and shepherd under Christ. These are the vices you should stay away from, and these are the virtues you should pray to put on. So what are the things you are to say no to? The things you say no to is what he says here. You shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not under compulsion, but willingly. That means not under obligation. You say, Bopian, I've been put on the roster. Bopian is a Hokkien phrase here in Singapore. Hokkien is a dialect, a Chinese dialect. And there's no one here. So I'm the only one available. So is your availability. But he says, don't do that. Don't serve God out of obligation as a last resort, but willingly, as if this is God's will for you. God's will for you is for you to serve. God's will for you is for you to be an elder, for you to be exercising oversight over God's people and not for shameful gain. And you read the shameful gain, it begins with monetary gain. Don't do it for money, but not just, but any gain. It could be intangible gains of men's recognition, men's applause to be needed, to be noted. Says, don't do that, but willingly and eagerly for God, not lording over, and not lording over. Some could swing to the other extreme of entitlement and presumption. And isn't that what happened to Peter? That he presumed that he was the, the leader of the disciples. And when Pete, when Jesus predicted about his sufferings leading to his death, his Peter lorded over his Lord. And that's, he says, don't do that. But examples to the flock of God. And what is the example? That once, at one point, I was so presumptuous of my leadership. I was so presumptuous that I knew better than my Lord. But then I, I failed him. But then I was forgiven. But then I was restored. And where did this happen? It's recorded for us in John 21, when the resurrected Jesus encounters Peter and asks him three times in the language that is here, the language of shepherd and sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Jesus asks him three times. And Jesus says to him, then you, if you love me, you express it by, you love me, you express it by, you feed my sheep. You feed my lambs. Willingly, eagerly, by being an example to them. And so, that's what he says. And then he goes on to say, say what? And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive this, the unfading crown of glory. And so for the very first time in the Bible, it's recorded here, 
Jesus is referred to as chief shepherd. It's very significant. And the message that Peter is sending is, as he traces this all the way, please don't be like the closet idolaters, the, the fake shepherds, the fake elders of Ezekiel's time. Please be the true shepherds. And if you ever fail God because you resorted to some sort of self-rescue, as I ex- experienced some sort of presumptuousness, I was forgiven, I was restored. Then you keep looking to Jesus as the chief shepherd to do this work of shepherding God's church and God's people. Did you not notice a consistent message throughout these five chapters? And what is the consistent message? The consistent message so far is this, right? As suffering believers, you keep looking to Jesus as the living hope, chapter 1, in your increasing circumstances of hopelessness. As suffering Christians, you keep looking to the living word, Jesus, to be what? To be God's loving family. You need the living word of God, the pure word of God, to keep growing in love for each other. As the suffering church, you keep looking not just to the the living hope in a world of hopelessness, the living word to love each other as God's family. You keep looking to the living stone, to be living stones, small living stones, plural, so that you'll be a witness. You live such good lives that though they malign you, though they slander you, they might be brought to salvation, willingly or unwillingly to acknowledge and to glorify God in the end. And so he's always asked them to to consider Christ, to consider Christ, keep looking to Christ, keep looking to Christ and His death and His resurrection. They gave you a living hope that can never spoil or fade or perish. Keep looking to Christ, the time, the end of all things is near. Keep looking to Christ and His appearing. Keep looking to Christ and His virtues. Consider Him, consider Him, Jesus as your chief shepherd. So I do not know, are you leading ministry in some way? There is no way you can start, continue and finish this impossible task called being God's shepherds without looking to Jesus the chief shepherd. And you keep looking to Jesus, the chief shepherd, no matter what the slander, no matter what the accusation, no matter what the malignment, you will be able to take it because you're looking forward to the crown that he will give, the unfading crown he will give to God's under-shepherds. And then he goes on to something really strange. He switches from the elders. But before we arrive there, the character of God's under-shepherds could be, in Peter's own experience, going all the way back to Ezekiel's time, into his own experience following the Lord Jesus Christ, we may initially begin by harboring closet self-rescue, self-righteousness. We harbour that deeply, maybe like like Peter. Then through an incident, we expose fully by God, you will deny me three times. Then we are humbled truly by God. And did you not notice, have you not noticed in the Bible, that's often the case. 
that with so many characters, before they can do mighty things for God, they have to walk through this path. Firstly, presuming that they could do things for God, then they're fully exposed of their, their self-sufficiency is fixed sufficiency, and then they're truly humble and then mightily used by God. We have just read through, Gen uh, through Genesis. Same for Abraham, same for Joseph, same for Moses who took things in his own hands. The character of God's vessels, the character of God's leaders, here specifically addressed to God's elders, is that we will most likely have to walk through this path. And if you are God's leaders, have you walked through this path? If you harbour some sense of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-rescue, but God will expose it fully and humble you truly before He can use you mightily. So I was sharing uh, this conference in East Malaysia once, and um, before we got started, the other speaker was sharing me his conversion, and I was sharing my conversion. And he was converted, but then he was he faced, a, as it were, a second conversion. I said, what's his second conversion? Is no, There's no second conversion. Yeah, I became a Christian already. I was really uh, lecturing in, in Bible college and doing quite well. And then uh, things got really rough with my wife, and I started to really be judgmental of her, and I felt superior to her and kept putting her down. And then one day, God just confronted me with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That love is patient, love is kind. Love is not proud, love does not boast. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. And when God confronted him one day in his quiet time with 1 Corinthians 13, it really broke him. It broke him, but it mended his heart and mended his marriage. And so he now reads 1 Corinthians 13 every day, he says. I now remember why he shared that story. Because I was preaching through 1 Corinthians, and I said, favourite chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, says, favourite too. But I have not read 1 Corinthians 13 every day. He has, because that passage has saved him. And so we walk through this. We harbour closet selfism, self-sufficiency. We expose fully by God, humble truly by God, used mightily by God. Then he moves on to something unusual. Likewise, you who are younger, the New International Version translates this as, likewise, you, the younger men, be subject to the older men. But the actual language is, likewise, you who are younger, men is not there. Be subject most likely not to the older, but to the eldest. And when you think about it, there's a lot of truth in this. Because when push comes to shove, when things get really bad, when you're under pressure from external troubles, right? Do you know what to do internally as a family? And usually the younger ones are most prone to rebel against their leaders, most prone not to submit. And so think about it. What are the external pressures we are facing now? COVID-19, the pandemic. You know, in Singapore, we've got to thank God that most of us, most of us mask up. And ever so often, you find a very weird, freakish case out there of somebody who doesn't want to wear a mask. In America, those who wear the mask and those who resist wearing the mask is almost 
it's been politicized. I've just been reading the news as you have been reading and you might watch some of those videos. And so you could be going to a school in America and then they're deciding whether to mandate wearing masks in school. And so you go to what we call a parents-teachers association meeting. And people know, because you may be posted on Facebook, that you support this mandate that, the, that, the, that your state has just passed, that you're gonna, you want to support this uh, proposal to, to wear masks. And you find that as you drive into the school compound, the other parents who are opposed to wearing masks, they surround you, they badger you, they hurl insults at you. For the life of me, when you face that, what do you do? What's the best way? Passively or give it back to them? Or watch what's happening as Pastor Singhut prayed. As all of us are now praying for Afghanistan, and especially for God's people, the church and Christians in Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, you realize that the Taliban have come in at the speed of lightning that the US intelligence totally underestimated. One of the best intelligence services in the world totally underestimated this. And village after village, town after town, city after city falls to Taliban rule. And under 20 years of living under American protection, right, some of them took the decision to declare themselves, we are Christians. Let's not lie to the state anymore. Let's declare openly and maybe let's get Christianity de declared and recognised as, as a legal religion previous to all Afghanistan. But all who have now declared themselves to be churches and Christians as the Taliban now marched in after 20 years. So what do we do now? What do we do now as Christians? The older folks, the leaders, the elders may have one idea. Do we, do we cling to Exodus chapter, Exodus, the book of Exodus, and say God is going to deliver us as much as Moses was sent to deliver them? Or do we cling to a passage in, in the prophets, right, that speak of them being captive, Babylonian captivity, that God's not going to rescue them like he did in the Exodus, but they're going to be taken in, into exile like Daniel and his friends. Or do we cling to Matthew chapter 10? Do not fear what they fear. Though they kill you in the body, they cannot kill your soul. Which Bible passage do we cling on to? And there'll be so many voices in a house church in Afghanistan of 20 people. There'll be 20 voices. That was most likely the situation in the house churches all over Asia Minor. In the churches of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Now as we find this onslaught of verbal abuse, verbal abuse, accusations, accusations, the mental strain of that, which is the right way out. And Peter writes, young men, your most younger ones, you are most prone not to submit. In all of this can we plead humility, that we don't have the silver bullet, we don't know we don't have one super vaccine that is going to cure us of this persecution, that's going to cure us of this, to stop this accusation. But we have the chief shepherd. We can look at his virtues, look at how he responded when he was reviled, he never did return that. We can look at what he did for us, he died, he rose. We can look forward to his coming again and receiving his crown. Right now, I don't have the silver bullet to how to stop this accusation. But I know 
that Jesus is the answer. And that's important. Clothe yourselves, all of you. So it's now not just a word to the elders, to the shepherds, not just a word to the younger ones. All of you, the whole church, with humility, right? Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Why? The reason that he gives is a very important one. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, this is a quotation from Proverbs and used in James chapter 4. Whatever you do not know, God hates pride. And that is the essence and stuff of the devil. And he tempted us to pride, to be wise in our own eyes. And the language here is God will keep opposing you if you choose to be proud, but God will keep gracing you if you choose to be humble before Him. Very, very important things for us to realise. So what lessons do we learn? What is it they really want? What is it they really need? As they consider Christ as their chief shepherd, consider Christ, then you're going to clothe yourself with His humility. As Peter now has clothed himself with humility, having learned of his wrong self-sufficiency. And so the pathway of both God's shepherds and God's sheep is that you, you and me have the journey. Previously, before I knew Christ or where I was very, very immature in my faith in God, where the deep roots of idolatry was very still, very deep in my life, the selfism was still very deep. I was still full of self in some ways, like Peter was, but empty of God, of totally trusting in Him. But now we all have to journey under God, under the chief shepherd, to be full of Christ, everything of Jesus, all that He did in the past, all that He's doing in the present, all that we can avail by following His example and all that we can look forward when He returns with the crown of glory for the elders. Very important for us to realise. Are you on this pathway where you're journeying from full of self, empty of God, to full of Christ and increasingly empty of self? So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So why does Peter say this? And why does he say this? Because there's nothing, the greatest expression of our humility. How do you know, some, how do you know you're humble before God? The greatest expression and experience that increasingly humble before God is you're willing to cast all your anxieties on Him. So the three wrong responses that they were tempted to in First Peter, as they were slandered, as they were maligned, as they were accused, was one, retaliate, two, give up, apostatize, and now three, to just be overwhelmed with anxieties. And Peter tells them, all three are wrong responses. The response that you want and the response that you need is humility, experienced by casting all your anxieties upon Him. And when He says He will exalt you in due time, 
you got to trust God completely for what? You trust God completely for the best way to bear up under this persecution, under this unjust suffering. And you trust God completely for the best time to lift you up of this, whether it's in this life or in the next life. Whatever it is, it's good. I've told this story so often of our, one of our first speakers at our church camp, one of my models in the Christian faith, Pastor Dudley Ford. He went to visit his nephew who was stricken with cancer at a very young age. And then as Dudley went to pray with him with his wife, they, he was sad. And the nephew said to him, Uncle, don't be sad for me. Whether I live or whether I die, it is according to God's will for God's glory. This young nephew had learned to humble himself under the, himself under the mighty hand of God. And I trust myself completely for the best way out of this and the best time out of this. Whether God is going to shorten it, whether God is going to end it, or whether God is going to bring my life to an end, I trust, I entrust myself completely to Him. And so, then he goes on. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. And so this language is used before. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 7. Sober-minded. Don't be drunkard. So be sober-minded. Be mindful. Be watchful. Be prayerful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, sinking, seeking for someone to devour. What is it you know about this lion? What is it you know about the devil who is portrayed as a lion? A lion comes on his prey stealthily, quietly, cunningly, and then when it pounces, it roars, right? And then it, it attacks. It's sudden, it's vicious, and it's deadly. The, never, the devil never tells you, I'm coming to attack you now, Chris. I'm actually coming to attack your marriage. I'm coming to attack your family. I'm coming to attack your, your discipleship group. I'm coming to attack your church. It's stealthily and then viciously and then deadly. And that's what he does. Are you going to be sober-minded, alert, be watchful against him? And this is the language that Jesus uses at the Garden of Gethsemane. He told Peter and the inner circle, watch and pray, watch and pray. I'm going to face the cross. Watch and pray. But they fell asleep. They didn't realize it was a deep spiritual battle. So when we draw the pieces together, the threads together, and next week we summarize with more depth all the five chapters, please take note that God works best on humility on people who are willing to humble ourselves to say, I trusted so much in myself, in my self-sufficiency. I was totally wrong. I should trust completely in you. Satan works best on pride. Take things into your own hands. And how might you take things into your own hands? We will address it even more. In chapter 2, verse 1, Satan will tempt you to do this. Tempt you to do what? Satan terrifies us 
The roar of the lion, he's stealthy, but when he pounces on you as a prey, right, he terrifies us to misread our circumstances. Our circumstances are so terrifying. They, I, I drove into that parent-teacher association meeting just about, vac- just about mass and vaccination. I was totally terrified. It traumatized me. I totally misread the circumstances. We're now living in Afghanistan. What do we do now? And once you misread your circumstances, like in, in Exodus, thus says my circumstances, God has abandoned you. Once you misread your circumstances, thus says God and His voice and His word, you misread and miss loving one another. And that's why Peter says in chapter 2, when you misread your circumstances, you not just face this from the outside, you're going to get, you're going to turn against each other. And when you turn against each other as the best solution out of your persecution, the best solution out of your temptation, Peter says, get rid of all of malice internally between you. Get rid of all deceit. Get rid of all hypocrisy. Get rid of all envy and slander. Thinking that you have the best idea and the best suggestion how to get out of this problem, you don't. We need to go to God in humility. And once we misread our circumstances, we misread and misloving each other, the biggest thing is Satan wants you to misread God and His love for you. And you will take things into your own hands. And guess what? you will be so tempted to return to being a closet idolater, to take things into your own hands, do things, and think that you'll be more secure because of it. And God's final words, be mindful and prayerful of what Jesus is doing. Consider Christ always what He is doing and be watchful for what the devil is doing. This is what you need. This is what you want. This is what will make you stand secure. This is what will make you overcome your unjust suffering as you face persecution and seduction and temptation. You always have to be mindful in every situation, day by day, what Jesus is doing and be watchful for what the devil is doing. And what is it? You have to resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist Him, stand firm. Resist Him, stand firm. Tell the devil to get lost. James will say, you resist the devil, you come near to God. Tell the devil to get lost, you come near to God. Most times, we tell God to get lost and we come near to the devil. We resist God and come near to the devil. We take things into our own hands. We think we're the only ones suffering this. Did you notice that this is a a battle between, hey, a battle between the chief shepherd, Jesus, and the devil, the lion? Who do you think will win? Shepherd versus lion. The lion wins. No, friends. The shepherd wins. The humble shepherd wins. So from the Old Testament, from Ezekiel to 1 Peter, God purifies His people. And now in 1 Peter, He purifies us by getting us to look at Jesus, the chief shepherd, to persevere. But Satan terrifies us as a roaring lion to give up on faith. So you've got to know who is doing what to you 
in your circumstances. God is purifying you in your faith. Satan is terrifying you to give up on your faith and obedience to God. And the only thing that stands between that is your chief shepherd. Whether you will listen to him or whether you listen to the roar of the lion who will terrify faith, who will terrify faith out of your hearts. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so the suffering is temporary. The trials are temporary. But the glory is eternal. And we look forward to sharing in God's presence and God's glory forever and ever. But boy, when we walk through what Satan throws at us, the roaring, the roaring lion terrifies us with, it's really dark. It's really dark. I was just speaking to this man and he's going through a rough, rough marriage. His wife has moved out and but every day he has to bring the children to to eat meals there. And every time they go there, the language is the language is not good at all. It's far from Christian. The wife has given up on that. It's a silly business called Christianity. And they are so bombarded. And he, he says to me, it's so dark. And every time I come back, I got to help my children just purify their minds, detox their minds from all the harsh words which includes sometimes four-letter words against the, the young children. It's very dark, no, in spiritual warfare. Very, very dark. And I said to him, maybe the way forward is to recognize this from First Peter and then pray and pray with your young children and tell them when they go to mom's place, even though mom is a dark place, we're in a spiritual battle, may they see mom as someone to pray, pray for, someone to love, someone to reach with a missional heart. Please save mom. Please don't let her be blinded by Satan. Please save mom. This is the battle and things can turn around, friends. They can. When we see with spiritual eyes what, what Jesus is doing, purifying our faith and see God's sovereignty, here's God's beautiful so sovereignty. Satan wants to terrify us to destroy our faith but God turns all His terrors around to refine and strengthen our faith. That's God. Only He can do that. Only He can turn the terror of Satan into the glory of God through Christ, the Chief Shepherd. And so through the years, we've done lots of ministry, conducted lots of funerals and conducted one this week. Then after the funeral this week, Something happened that has never happened in all my 30 years here. I, immediately, one of the people who attended the funeral asked to pray to receive Christ as their Saviour and Lord there and then. And then we asked her, why? I mean, at a funeral, some people might mock the Christian. Right? The Christian, right? But still got sick, right? Still died of disease, right? Still died of cancer. What's the use? Same, same destiny, right? whether you believe in God, believe in Jesus, what's the use? But this relative expressed the desire 
through her tears, right, that she wanted to believe in Jesus as her own Saviour and Lord. Having seen her relative who believed in Christ and see her example that she never feared, she never complained. And then finally, when the message was preached, the gospel was preached about Christ and the eternal home He promises all. She was just so struck by the Word of God, so struck by the Spirit of God, so struck by the testimony. You would think that with death, Satan has won, right? No. After death comes resurrection. So God knows how to turn this around. So what is it you really want? What is it you really need? To overcome persecution, to overcome temptation and seduction. We really need the Lord Jesus. We really need to know what He is doing, purifying us in our faith. And we really need to watch out against Satan, who is out to destroy our faith. And so we're going to end our time by singing this song, Consider Christ. Keep considering Christ and you will experience the beauty of His victory over Satan. Allow me to pray. Let's spend some time of quietness before God, just listening to Him speak into our very hearts. We are warned by Your Word, O Lord, from the Old to the New Testament, of what you really hate, that you really hate closet idolaters among your worshippers. We pray that we ourselves would not be found to be as such. Trusting in ourselves in some hidden way, thinking that we have some self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and self-rescue when we have none. And you in your love take us through that path to break us, to humble us, to forgive us, to restore us. We thank you for these words that Peter the Apostle has written. We pray to listen to them. That we'll humble ourselves under your mighty hand so that you may exalt us in due time, casting all our cares upon you for you care for us and for us to be sober and alert because our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We pray to know deeply what you are doing in our life to purify us and to be watchful against what Satan might be doing to destroy our faith in you. Hear our prayers that we might be strong testifying to you knowing that you do the U-turns in our life for your glory. Amen.